The scripture reading today is selected from Psalm 42, verses 1 through 5. Please turn to the bulletin to read responsibly. Hear the word of the Lord. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let us join before God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, told us that we cannot live by bread alone, but only by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts and fill us with that word today. Through what we sing, through what we say, through what is preached and what we hear, speak to us, we pray. For the sake of Jesus your Son, our Lord and Savior. Amen. In our sermons throughout the fall, we're looking together at Jesus' teaching as we find it in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. You find the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, and it is the heart and the core of Jesus' teaching. There may be things that you know of that Jesus says, not everything, of course, but many of them come from the Sermon on the Mount. And if you want to check up on Jesus' teaching, that's the first place to go to chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. So, for example, you want to find out where the Lord's Prayer is that we say in our worship Sunday after Sunday. This is the prayer that Jesus taught us. Where did he teach that? He teaches that in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel. These three important chapters in the pages of Scripture begin with a group of statements that we call the Beatitudes. These are statements about blessedness. That's the normal translation. But I would say that they are actually about happiness because the word in Greek that we have there in the original New Testament is makarios, and makarios in everyday speech means happiness, and somehow translators have thought that it needs to sound just a little bit more holy than that. But it's really not a holy word. It's an everyday word. So Jesus, of course, is concerned that we become holy and that we become godly. But that's not, not all that Jesus is concerned about. He is concerned as well, for example, that we die and go to heaven, that we get our spiritual relationship with God right, right now, something that lasts through all eternity and can take us through the gates of death into God's presence. Jesus is concerned about that. But foundationally, according to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, the preface at the beginning. 
Jesus is even concerned about our, our happiness, something as simple and mundane and down-to-earth as that right here and now. And I say this because many people cannot imagine a Jesus who is interested in, well, just the ordinary, everyday things of life in such a way as that. Yet this is, to begin with, a very ordinary, down-to-earth word. And yet the fact of the matter is, though this, that while Jesus speaks about happiness, it's not an ephemeral happiness that Jesus is speaking about. It's not something that comes and goes quickly, something that is transient, as if it doesn't mean that much. But rather, he wants for us that kind of happiness in life that nothing can take away. The kind of happiness in life that comes, well, really from the most unexpected places and the most unexpected circumstances and sources in life. So this is what Jesus says in these Beatitudes. He says, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. We looked at this a few weeks ago, and for the most part, this is a completely unexpected statement. I mean, I doubt that anybody you know of has said, happy are the poor in spirit. What in the world does that mean? It seems to be a contradiction in terms. To be poor in spirit almost means, well, not to be happy unless it means that we need to be poor enough to call upon God for help. Our spirit is poor enough so that we know that we cannot live life in our uh, uh, by our own resources, but only with the help of God. And so we cry out to God for help because we are, well, we are poor in spirit. And that, that begins to be the source in the beginning of our happiness. And this kind of way is thinking in, is true in the rest of these Beatitudes as well. Happy are those who mourn. If you don't mourn, you'll never get past the roadblock of loss in relationships, in the injustice of this world in our own sin, that's the place to start. Not to end, but to start. And the beginning of some kind of a new life that follows after that. Happy are the meek, who trust not in our own strength, but in the power of God. We've looked at these so far. Then, happy are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Well, that's a strange one too. But all of these are to come down the road. We come today to the statement about happiness where Jesus says, Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled or they will be satisfied. Happiness linked to righteousness. We'll think about this in a moment or two, whatever that may mean. Happiness linked to righteousness. But it's also linked to our appetites and to our desires, what we hunger and thirst for. And that's what I'd like us to think about, first of all, this morning. Appetites, our desires, hungerings, and thirstings. Jesus actually, in the Sermon on the Mount, speaks about a number of these appetites, hungerings, and thirstings that we have in our life for this, that, or the next thing. To begin with, for example, he speaks about our hungering, well, this is sort of natural, for food, regular, everyday food. When he speaks about fasting, in Matthew chapter 6, he's really speaking about our hungering for, for what we eat and the limitations that we choose to impose upon that. This is what he says, whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
So I'm not really going to speak about fasting in any detail this morning. A lot could be said about that. But just want to draw to your attention one thing that emerges from these words that Jesus shares in the Sermon on the Mount. He does not say, if you fast. But he says, when you fast, whenever you fast. As if you're going to do it at some time. He's not specific about how we do it. Once every year, once a month every year, once a week during the year. No, he doesn't give us any of those specifics. But he does say, this is something you need to do at some point in your life. You need to bring your consumption of food, your appetite, your desire for food under control for the sake of God. That's what fasting is. Under control for the sake of God. Not to be unlimited, but something, an appetite and a desire that God is interested in to be controlled at some point or another for his sake. Of course, we know that this is a critical discipline, whether we're in the spiritual world or not, for life, for everyday life as we live our lives in these flesh and blood bodies that God has given to us, controlling and adjusting our appetites. And this has led to a, a huge industry within our modern world where we have an abundance of food. Well, to begin with, the industry of producing the food is huge, but then we have an abundance of food and at times we don't know what to do with the food that we have. So we hire dietitians, we join weight loss programs, we check out TV cooking shows of one kind or another, all to sort out our appetites, sometimes confused, sometimes disordered, always seeking some sort of satisfaction and some sort of happiness. Nothing wrong with that. This is a part of God's good creation, the way we were designed. But these things just get out of whack and out of alignment and need to be brought into control, says Jesus, when he speaks about fasting. And he does that in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Sermon on the Mount as well. He speaks about the appetite not just for food, but the appetite for money and the accumulation of things for which at times there doesn't seem to be any limit on the amount that we look for and that we think will bring us, well, will bring us happiness. The scriptures, by the way, never say once again that the appetite for money is wrong or the appetite for wealth is wrong. It's not money in itself. It's not wealth in itself. But the scriptures are very clear that the love of money, this is Paul writing to Timothy, is the root of all evil. When we get our love wrong, when we get our, well, our appetite wrong, when it's out of control, that's when things go wrong with a God-given desire to use the material world that God has given to us, our dependence on it, our never knowing when enough is enough. The appetite gone askew. So Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says uh, this in chapter 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not hunger and, and thirst for treasures on earth. He might just as well have said where moth and rust consume, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So the appetite for money, for wealth, is mentioned by Jesus, is on his mind in the Sermon on the Mount. And his ap uh, 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 the, uh, uh, the appetite we have for food and drink is on Jesus' mind as he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we also have to add that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses our appetite for sexual intimacy. In the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, and he's speaking to men in particular here in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus knows as well that this appetite, along with these other appetites, are given to us by God, created by God, in and of themselves good gifts of a good God by design for our happiness. For our happiness. But he also says that like food and like money, like wealth, this appetite can become disordered. And what we need to do is to bring it under wraps, to put it in its proper place and position, hold it in a proper perspective, and at times restrain it to fulfill God's purposes and, in fact, to find the happiness which God intends for us within it. This is not exactly the message we get from the society around about us, which screams out again and again, indulge your appetite to the fullest, whatever it may be, just like food and wealth. Indulge your appetite to the fullest. Whereas Jesus says, of course this is good, but like every appetite, carry it to an extreme and it will not provide the happiness that you are looking for. You need a context. You need a set of boundaries. And in the case of sexual intimacy, that boundary is the covenant faithfulness of marriage. Otherwise, and Jesus is so sharp here, otherwise you're breaking the commandment of adultery. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who even goes this far looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Tough stuff. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a context for these good and God-given appetites in all kinds of different directions in life, and there are far more appetites in life than just these. But he sets the context in particular by referring in the Beatitudes, as we heard a moment or two ago, to another appetite, as if to say, this one must be the crown jewel. It must be above every, every other appetite. If you're going to deal with these and find some happiness within them, then you need to have an appetite for something else which is stronger than all these other appetites within your life. And so he says, happy are those who hunger and thirst, whose dominant appetite is for righteousness, for righteousness. To which I would respond, and perhaps you, by going, hmm, hadn't thought about that one before. Many of these things, they just don't come naturally to us. Righteousness, the foundation of the satisfaction of our drives and our desires. Righteousness, which of course begs the question, and this is really the second thing that I want to speak about. The question is, so what is that? What is this righteousness for which we are to hunger and thirst above every other hunger and thirst and desire that we may have? What is righteousness all about? Well, I dare say that to begin with, when we hear the word righteousness, our response is not perhaps necessarily a positive response, and maybe that's because if we use the word righteous at all in our society, uh, then the context is usually within uh, 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 two words which form an adjective which is not very positive. We often use it in the context of the, uh, the adjective self-righteous, the hyphenated self-righteous. This is a description, generally speaking, of somebody we may not like that much. We hope that we're not in that particular category. We don't like that once because they always think that they're right. 
And they don't think that they belong to the same level as other people who aren't as right as they are. And so we say that that person is self-righteous. They have a standard that they hold to, that they think they keep, and they're blind to their failures there. While the rest of us don't meet those standards, they, they are self-righteous. So righteousness, to begin with, I dare say, for many people, is either not a word we ever think about at all, or if we do, it's not necessarily a positive word. Yet in the Scripture, it's a word that's used frequently, again and again and again, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And if we're to understand it correctly, actually it is not a hard and a harsh word. It is not about a standard of perfection which is absolutely brittle. It's actually a very flexible word or characteristic that people should have within their lives, which is going to change from person to person and circumstance to circumstance, because what it ultimately means is to be rightly related. Rightly related. To do the right thing in a particular circumstance with a particular person. And it's going to vary from person to person. So think, for example, about the righteousness we need in relationship to the person of God. And we need to be righteous in relationship to God. Well, once again, Jesus speaks about this in the Sermon on the Mount when he speaks about seeking God's kingdom. King James Version, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And righteousness actually comes both in the call to seek, but especially in the word first above everything else. Well, how else should you treat God except first? I mean, God is not God if God is not first. Any relationship with God in which God is not first is not a righteous or a right relationship. If God is God, then God must be first. And not just first out there, but first in our lives and in our hearts and in, well, in our desires and in our passion and in our our appetites. God first. Anything else unrighteous. And here's a word which is related to this, inappropriate. Just not appropriate. What's appropriate for God? Well, the only thing that's appropriate for God is to be number one. To put it positively, we read about this in our psalm, Psalm 42. Remember these words, as a deer longs for flowing streams, hungry and thirsty in this case. So my soul longs for you, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Ah, that's what we were created for. That's the thirst, the appetite, which should be driving our lives above everything else because God is first and is the foundation of all that lives, including your life and mine. And we have to ask ourselves, well, where is this appetite in my life? If this is wrong, then I'll never find the happiness that I'm looking for. But if I get that right, then all these other drives and desires in my life, maybe they'll begin to be put into the right order within me. And I'll actually find more happiness in them than I would find if I just gave them free reign. So right relatedness to God. Yeah, that's, that's what we need to hunger and thirst for. But that's only half the story, of course, when it comes to relationships. Right relatedness as well to human beings. So the vertical dimension with God and the horizontal level with human beings. Not surprisingly, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks a great deal about being rightly related to other human beings. And he does so in particular in one 
passage which has been really important to me in my life, and, and I hope and I pray, Lord, help me to be this kind of a person, and I trust that you pray this as well. Much more to pray about in the Sermon on the Mount, but this is so important in life. Jesus says, when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go first, that word first again, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift to God. So we worship God Sunday by Sunday. And obviously I do. I'm here in the pulpit. Sunday by Sunday, this is a good thing. God wants us to do this. We want to be rightly related to God. We want to say our prayers. I hope I say my prayers. But as important as this is in honoring God, God says, you're not honoring me if you don't spend your time and your energy healing your relationships on a horizontal level as well. Coming to worship without sorting those things out, ooh, not righteous, not right, not appropriate, even in the sight of God. Jesus says the ball is always in our court. And it's not about whether we're to blame or not, or they're to blame or not. We're the ones who've been called by Jesus to make things right when things are wrong. And it's more important than being here. When you're offering your gift at the altar, you're coming to worship. If you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come offer your gift to God. The vertical and the horizontal, right relatedness, a passion for our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to ask ourselves how passionate we are, how hungry and thirsty we are to sort things out. I know there are many who are stuck because they think the ball is in somebody else's court. No, says Jesus, it's in our court. And if we're hungry and thirsty, we'll seek the help from God in being rightly related to God that we need to sort things out down here below. Deeply personal. But this also must extend into the public realm as well. One of the most important and the best, from my point of view, books that I've read over the past uh, year and a half on matters of race relationships is a book written by South Carolina judge Richard Gurgle, and it's called Unexampled Courage. Unexampled Courage, and then it mentions the name of a man, Sergeant Isaac Woodard, Unexampled Courage, The Blinding of Sergeant Isaac Woodard, and it's been turned into a PBS documentary just called The Blinding of Sergeant Isaac Woodard, and I recommend it strongly to you. Uh, this is a book uh, which tells a story which I had not heard before about the foundational work behind civil rights in our nation following World War II. Sergeant Woodard was one of 900,000 African-Americans who served in the armed forces in World War II. He'd been willing, along with the others, to sacrifice his life, if need be, for the sake of the nation. But returning to that same nation after the war and living in the South, he returned to the same laws that were in existence before the war and experienced all the horror of Jim Crow. Indeed, in his case, in the case of Isaac Woodard, still in uniform, stepping off a bus in a small southern town on his way home, he was beaten up by the police and blinded permanently, not just temporarily, but permanently, before he could get home, safe in the war, and at home, 
his eyesight taken away from him because of brutality. His story was made famous by Orson Welles and came to the attention of President Harry Truman, whose Confederate roots were absolutely impeccable and whose personal prejudices and weaknesses were not unknown. He was not righteous in the sense of a perfect standard, but he would become righteous in terms of doing the right thing to heal broken relationships. Truman understood that as president of the United States and as one who was sworn to uphold the Constitution of the United States, that he was in a role and needed to fulfill the role of being president for all. President for all, and he would repeat this in his speeches. And such cruelty and injustice as that which was shown to Sergeant Wooded was to him an outrage and a blight on the nation and an outrage and a blight on America's standing in the world. So in January 1947, he began to take action. At that time, he commissioned a civil rights committee that would produce, uh, would produce uh, by October of that year, a landmark report known as To Secure These Rights. Pretty foundational for much that was to follow in the 1950s. On June the 29th, 1947, uh, he commissioned this report, and then on June the 29th, uh, 1947, he became the first president to address the NCAAP in a speech which he said uh, his mother would not have been pleased to hear him speak. It was not what he'd been taught to say growing up. And then a year later, in July 1948, he issued an executive order 9980 prohibiting discrimination in federal uh, employment and effectively ending segregation in federal offices and facilities leading to uh, the end of segregation in the U.S. military. And he did all of this while the polls were against him. 82% of Americans opposed what he was doing in terms of civil rights. And his chief political strategist, Clark Kif Clifford, reminded him that his approach was a recipe for defeat in the upcoming election. So this is 1948, and the election is coming. To Truman, though, it did not matter. It simply did not matter. His appetite for power, and I have not mentioned that appetite, but that's one of the appetites which surely is dominant in many people's lives, his appetite for power was not as strong in this case as his appetite for what was right, for what was righteous, and for this moment where constitutionally he knew what he had promised, he knew what his office was, and in his case, he knew what was wrong and he knew what was right. And Richard Gurgel in the book says this, he says, when a group of Southern congressional leaders approached the president with an offer to quell the Dixiecrat third-party rebellion in the Democratic Party to help him with the, the election. Truman responded that my forebears were Confederates, and every factor and influence in my background would foster the personal belief that you are right. But he says, whatever inclination as a native of Missouri uh, I might have had, as president, I know this is bad. I shall fight to end evil like this. What an appetite, what a desire, what a passion. And he held to it. And he not only won the election, but his party regained control of the House, and he even had massive support unexpectedly in the South. Hungering and thirsting above everything else 
for right relatedness with God, with one another, in private and in public, to do what is right. And Jesus says, if you get that at the, the foundation of your life, then all these other good and God-given appetites will find their place within your life. And the happiness that we crave will be ours more than we could ever imagine. He says, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled or satisfied. Let us pray. Holy God, please come to us and sort out the confusion within our lives, so often wrapped up in appetites of one kind or another, which are in some way out of control. We need your help. So help us to mourn and grieve and to be poor enough in spirit to seek that help. And know that your strength is what we need. Give it to us now, we pray, through Jesus, your Son, our Lord. Amen.